We're in Acts chapter 20. If you have a Bible, open it there. Uh, we'll look at the first uh, half, roughly, of the chapter this morning. Uh, Acts chapter 20 is, is a turning point for the Apostle Paul. Uh, as we have been going through this book now for <laughs> the last year plus, or whatever it is, um, <laughs> as, as, as you get to know my teaching, I am not known for moving quickly. Uh, there's just so much here. Uh, we want to plumb God's word together. But here, Paul is, at, he's been on his third missionary journey. And we know that if, if you have uh, studied your Bible much, that he had three. <laughs> and at, in chapter 20, we're going to see where he travels to Greece, to Corinth specifically, and that's the end of the line. And then he begins to come back, to go back to uh, Israel, to Jerusalem, to catch the Feast of Pentecost. But there is so much going on in the meantime. The reason why this is, uh, I call this farewell, part one, obviously uh, the second half of the chapter, Paul has a very, it's literally a tearful goodbye with the elders at the church at Ephesus, the church that he had been at for some time. And as he ministered in Ephesus, the Holy Spirit was poured out. And as the Holy Spirit was poured out, people were just being saved <laughs> in huge numbers, really. They were sending people out from Ephesus to different parts of the region of Asia. And the whole province of Asia, Asia Minor, Little Asia, that's what that means, was, was converting to Christ. So, He'd been there in Ephesus for nearly three years, and, and he ran into varying degrees of difficulty. Uh, his work, however, had been quite fruitful, as, as I mentioned. He began in the synagogue when he first got there. The first time that he was at Ephesus was for a short time at the end of his second missionary journey, and they really wanted him to come back. He said, God willing, it will. So then when he did come back and return to Ephesus, he was able to go to the synagogue and he found favor with them for about three months. And then <laughs> things went south. So he ended up going to a place called the School of Tyrannus, which was a lecture hall. Uh, and he spent two years there every day for two years, spending about five hours a day uh, giving instruction to the people, preaching the gospel and then equipping people to go out. So through that equipping, uh, as I mentioned, the whole region... Uh, was being evangelized. And so that, combined with a tremendous outpouring of the Holy Spirit, uh, resulted in this huge revival, or it, it, actually the initial, the planting, the evangelizing of this entire region. Uh, it was an amazing thing that was going on. Now, remember at the same time, Ephesus was known for being a center for occultic practices. I mean, <laughs> they were heavy into all kinds of weird pagan stuff. And it was the home of the Temple of Diana. And uh, we saw the people, as they were getting saved, they were abandoning Diana worship and turning in large numbers uh, from their former ways to embrace Jesus. As that was happening, as we saw last week, <laughs> it wasn't a good thing for the pagan idol business. There were these silver there was a guy named Demetrius. He was a silversmith uh, and he got upset. He incited a riot at the, in the city of Ephesus and 
he did so under the pretense that Demetrius was, uh, he, he's saying that this so-called way, that was the name for the early church, that it, they were ruining the reputation of Diana. <laughs> that wasn't what was going on at all. The reality was because sales of their silver pagan idol trinkets that they did had fallen off. I mean, when you convert to Christ, a lot of the former stuff, <laughs> the Lord willing, drops off. And so that was what was going on. Their sales were, were were gone. And so they got upset. They got the whole city worked up. I mean, they got it. They, they were worked in, literally, it says they were worked into an uproar. And and I, I love the passage that we looked at last week where uh, these people, I mean, they get so upset and it just flashes through the city and everybody's upset and, and they go flooding into this big amphitheater and it says that many of them or most of them had no idea what they were upset about, but they were upset. <laughs> and so, but that's human nature. That's what happens when a pack mentality or a mob mentality takes hold. We've seen it, we've seen it in our time. And it's crazy uh, to watch. So about that time, the city clerk, who was kind of the top dog in the city, uh, he steps up, he reminds them <laughs> that there's a good way and a not so good way to go about this, folks. And by the way, you're not going about this in a wise way at all, because uh, the course that they were on, he, he tells them that, that they're at risk of bringing the Romans down upon them. And we, again, talked about that last week. We don't need to go into it again, but <clears throat> it would not have been good for them or for him, for that matter. I think there was a certain aspect of personal protection there with the guy stepping up and, and getting a hold of the crowd. So then he goes, I let them know that there were legal channels that they could take, and, and <clears throat> he knew they didn't have a case. But he said, look, there's legal recourse that you have, and then he sets the crowd loose and says, go home, just he dismisses the crowd. That's where we ended up last week was with this whole riot thing going on. So as we start this morning in Acts chapter 20, verse 1, again, chapter breaks added by man. It's a continuation of the narrative that we're looking at from chapter 19. That's why I laid the groundwork so that we can get into this and have an idea, a context within which we understand these things are going on. So in chapter 20, verse 1, it says, After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them. Uh, now, it, that's rendered differently in different translations. It's not a big deal, but uh, New American Standard says encouraged or exhorted them. And they departed to go to Macedonia. Now, Macedonia, we'll look at it in a minute, uh, would have been to the northwest of where he was. And it, there's going to be a lot of things going on along the way. So when all the shouting had finally stopped and the riot dispersed, Paul sent word to the disciples in the city. He wanted them to meet with them so he could say goodbye. Uh, he had, remember, he had been here in Ephesus for nearly three years. And he had forged some deep and, and meaningful relationships with people, uh, certain leaders. And we'll look at that later in the chapter next week. Uh, but then he had a lot of people that were following Christ that he had connected with. So he puts the word out, look, I'm leaving Ephesus and uh, I want to be able to see you before I go. It, now, understand too, I don't think that Paul left because of the riot. <laughs> in chapter 19, in verse 21, it said that he purposed in his spirit to leave. 
And that was before the riot. So uh, understand, he's not doing this out of duress. He's doing this because the Holy Spirit had borne witness to him that his work there in Ephesus was wrapping up and it was time for him to move on. And that It's that simple. So thinking about time-wise, this is probably in the late summer or early autumn of 57 A.D., uh, it is important because we'll look at, this connects with a lot of other stuff that's going on. There were several other books, letters that he wrote to other churches during this trip. Luke doesn't bring them out, but as we look at the full counsel of God, and he talks about the full counsel of God later in chapter 20, as we look at it, we see that these things mesh together. And it really helps to fill in the blanks, for me anyway, in my own studies, to understand, well, where was that letter written? Why was it written? To whom was it written? And what was going on? What was the background? And we see a lot of that literally between the lines here in chapter 20. So uh, he gathers these guys up. He encourages them. He challenges them. He comforts them. And then he gives them a hug. It says that he embraced them. And he started out for Macedonia. Now, his first stop would have been a city north of Ephesus called Troas. That's where he had met Luke on his previous journey. Uh, this first slide that I have, it shows a, sort of a large picture. It, I got to tell you guys, whenever I talk about slides, I look out and I see everybody's heaven, the, or their faces looking, and it's like, I wonder if that's going to be like in the rapture. Anyway, I, I totally, all right, I'm kind of weird, but um, it is funny from this vantage point to see everybody looking right past me, and it's like, uh, great, look up for your redemption draws near. Anyway, this first slide, back to it. It, it shows the whole Mediterranean area, uh, as you see in the lower right, uh, right to the center is, is Jerusalem. And then, uh, so you see that's where Israel is, or Judea and, and the whole area there, Palestine in the first century. Antioch, if you look north, that's in Syria. And we'll talk about as we go along this morning that Paul wants to return to Syria because that was his sending church. That was where he came from. He, his, all three of his missionary journeys originated from the church at Antioch in Syria. So, and then you trace the dotted line over, and, and this third journey, he makes it to Ephesus. Remember, on his second journey, the Holy Spirit said, no, nah, I don't want you to go to Asia. I, I don't want you to, to go to visit. The, I don't want you to go to Bithynia, to the north. Asia to the south, that's where he ended up in Troas and ended up going to Macedonia and beyond. So here, uh, the dotted line goes to Ephesus. Now, if you look, let's go to the second map, <clears throat> just a, an enlargement of the inset there. Uh, from Ephesus to Troas, Troas was northwest of Ephesus. So going across the Aegean Sea there, that's the... Uh, part of the Mediterranean, but it's called the Aegean Sea between Asia and Greece. Uh, they would get on a boat, they would go up to Philippi, which is then in Macedonia. Uh, as they would go across, now the, the cities that he would visit, it would be uh, Thessalonica and Berea. You've heard of the Bereans, that's where that comes from. And then he would end up in Corinth. So when he had 
when he was at Troas, uh, he talks about some things which I think is very interesting. Uh, he wrote his first letter to this church at Corinth uh, from Ephesus a couple of years earlier uh, because he'd heard there were serious problems there. Now, when that happened, and I'm backing up some here, so a couple of years earlier, he writes this letter to the church at Corinth. He says, you know, you guys are getting all mixed up and divided, and, you know, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, and, and he goes on, and, and uh, 1 Corinthians is just a, a great letter of correction, because if you could do it wrong, the Corinthian church was doing it that way. <laughs> and so he, it, it's one correction after another. He loved this church. Understand, he really, he spent a couple of years in Corinth on his previous journey, and he really loved the, the church and the work that was going on there, and he knew that divisions had risen in their ranks and that they were starting to drift. So what he did is he sent Titus, a guy by the name of Titus. Many say that it was Luke's brother, but we don't know that. Uh, but he sends Titus to Corinth to address those issues, uh, and he hoped to meet back with him when he went to Troas after he left Ephesus. All right? Uh, <clears throat> in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 12 and 13, we read, he says, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, a door was opened to me by the Lord, and I know, had no rest in my spirit because I didn't find Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. So, what Paul wanted to do was to get a report. These, they couldn't call each other. <clears throat> they couldn't even arrange to meet, you know, at a certain place and date. They could, they could try to get that worked out. But I mean, it would have been tough to reconnect with people in that day. So Paul goes, he evidently had arranged for, for Titus to meet back up with him. And he's expecting to see Titus at Troas. He doesn't find him there. And so he heads off to Macedonia. Now, as he travels through Macedonia, uh, at some point, he was reunited with Titus, and it was a joyful reunion. Uh, Titus reported to the Corinthians that they had been broken over their sin. Uh, they'd repented. The church was, uh, for the most part, doing well. Uh, and it was at that point that Paul wrote a second letter to the church at Corinth. We call it 2 Corinthians. And uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7... Uh, we read this, it says, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. This is when he gets reunited with Titus. Uh, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation uh, with which he was comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice even more. So Titus comes back, he, he connects back up with Paul, and, and things are going well at Corinth. Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the second letter to the Corinthians and essentially express the gratitude he had for the work that had been done through Titus, largely, we can assume, in bringing correction to that church. So in verse 2, we read here, it says, Now when he, we, when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece. So Luke just skips. <laughs> there's not a lot of detail here, but there's so much going on. Again, 
uh, it, that we garner from other books, that we can gather this information up and really get a, a more comprehensive idea of what is going on because he skips right from Troas all the way through Macedonia, all the way down to Greece. And we know that the city that he visited in Greece was Corinth. Uh, Corinth, is, as I showed you on the map a minute ago, it was a city about 50 miles to the west of Athens at the southern part of Greece. So as we look at all that's going on in these first two verses, we see that uh, from the time that Paul left Ephesus for Macedonia, finally arrived in Greece, that he had been on this route before. When he was on his second journey, he's retracing the route that he was. Uh, that he took. So understand too, this wasn't as much an evangelistic trip as it was to encourage the Macedonian churches. And also they were collecting an offering for the church back at Jerusalem. That was part of his intention. We looked at that last week, that as he traveled through this region, that he would be collecting an offering. He would also be collecting people. We'll look at that in a few minutes. So at that point, he comes to Greece. And so when he came to Greece, in verse 3, it says, And he stayed three months, and when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So uh, as had been the case on his second journey, Corinth, as I mentioned, it was the end of the line. Uh, and he spent the winter there. Remember, this is he starts out from Ephesus late summer, early autumn. He gets through Macedonia and he winters at Corinth. Now, as he was doing that, remember, he was, he was very troubled during this time. He said, you know, there, there's a lot of, he had a lot of fears because everybody by this point was out to get him. Uh, he was under heavy, heavy persecution wherever he went. He had become known and, and, uh, taught, uh, disrupted the pagan religions of the day, disrupted Judaism, uh, with the gospel. I mean, it, things were really heating up for him. So he's, he's troubled about that, but he's also troubled because he's hearing reports now from the churches of Galatia, which is due east of where he is in Macedonia. He's hearing reports that there's a lot of trouble there. Uh, these guys known as the Judaizers had come in and now they were trying to pollute the doctrine of the church. They were trying to water it down, say, oh yeah, you're saved by grace, but you also need to live by the law of Moses, by the way. And so uh, there was a lot going on in his ministry. He's he because he's towards the end of his third journey here he has covered a lot of ground in the last several years and so now this report's coming in and it's probably and we don't know exactly and there's some debate with scholars uh, when he gets to Corinth he writes the letter to the churches in Galatia that's what we call the book of Galatians in the New Testament so uh, interesting, because Paul couldn't be everywhere at once, he resorted to writing letters greatly to our benefit, totally the plan of God in bringing the New Testament to us. <clears throat> so uh, also when he, after he wrote the letter to the Galatians, he, remember we talked last week that he said, look, I want to go to Macedonia and Achaia. That's where Greece is. Uh, and he said, and then after that, I'd really like to go to Rome. So while he's at Corinth, he realizes he's not going to be able to go to Rome uh, 
And so he writes them a letter instead. <laughs> that is uh, the book of Romans, the, the greatest of the epistles in all of the New Testament. Uh, and so he's at Corinth. He writes that. And remember now we looked at... Uh, when we studied in, in, on his second journey, I've got a couple more maps here. This third one, it shows uh, Corinth there. Uh, it, it's on an isthmus, which is a strip of land between two seas. There's the Adriatic Sea to the north, the Aegean Sea to the south, kind of to the uh, northwest and southeast. Uh, and so there's Corinth. Now, if you look at this at map four, uh, just blowing up a little bit, uh, the inset there, you see, there's Corinth, and there's a, a seaport city called Sancria. Now, there was a woman, a young woman, that lived at Sancria uh, that was named Phoebe. Now, she was the one that Paul had heard that she was getting ready to travel to Rome. We don't know how he heard, but word had come to him that she was part of the church that had been planted at Sancria. And so he gets a hold of Phoebe. And uh, says, look, I'd like for you to carry this letter that I've written to the church at Rome. Uh, and she, it's something that kind of blows my mind because there's no way that Phoebe could have known at that time that this letter would be the greatest of the epistles of the New Testament. I mean, think about it. She's got this scroll in her hand. <laughs> and... Uh, it's just remarkable to me how these things all link together. Now in Romans 16, and I know I'm covering a lot of ground, but it, yeah, believe me, it's worth laying the groundwork here because it, this, it, especially when we get to the second half of this chapter next week, it gets rich. Some of my absolute favorite passages in all of God's word are in, in Acts chapter 20, the second half. So, uh, bear with me. I know that this is a lot of information, but it's really important that we understand the nuts and bolts of what's going on because it gives us the big picture of, of how to interpret that. What does that mean? How does it apply to my life? So in Romans chapter 16, Paul writes about this woman, Phoebe, uh, and he says, I commend to you, Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant at the church in Sancria that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. So again, think of it. it here we are nearly 2,000 years later and the inspired words that she held in her hand uh, as she boarded this ship uh, would become something that, that would down through the ages that people would greatly benefit from. I mean, there's no greater exposition of what Christianity is than the book of Romans. Uh, I've likened it to, if the New Testament were a mountain range, Romans would be the highest peak. And so she's got this thing in her hand and he sends her off uh, on, her, on her way to Rome. So now, as Paul, he's wrapping up his time in Corinth, and he's preparing to sail from Sincrea to Syria, because that's where the seaport was that he would take. He would cross the isthmus there and go to, to Sincrea. He becomes aware that there's a plot by the Jews, the, the, the hostile Jews, not all of them, but there were, there were certain people in Judaism that did not like him and they wanted him out of there. They did not want to put up with him. And he becomes aware of this plot. 
Probably a plot that when he got on the boat, that they would ambush him in the middle of the night and throw him overboard. I mean, that's speculation, but he understands that there's great danger if he gets on this boat. And so uh, he decides that it's time for me to walk instead. So he decides to take the overland route and he doubles back uh, going through Macedonia again. So uh, in verse 4, it says, And so Peter of Berea accompanied him to Asia. Also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. So Luke not only gives us names in verse 4, but he gives us places as well. And there's a reason for that. Uh, and the reason is because these men, they comprised a delegation of sorts. Uh, he's, like I said, he's, he's gathering this offering for the church at Jerusalem, but he's also gathering representatives from the churches that were sending the offering. So, uh, as he's doing that, it's something I think is interesting. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, uh, Paul writes about this when he's writing that first letter to the church at Corinth, he says, look, when I come to you, he says, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. So he writes that ahead of time. Now he's in Corinth and he is gathering these people up to take uh, this offering back to the church at Jerusalem. He wanted this to be a powerful witness to the church at Jerusalem from the Gentile churches. Talked about that last week. Very important because strife had begun to arise between the Gentile and the Jewish fellowships and, and he wanted to see the body of Christ united and unified. So uh, that was a, a, a sort of a byproduct. The, the, the initial part of that was that they were in need. They, there was a, a severe famine in Israel, in Jerusalem, and they were also under persecution from both from the Romans and the Jews, and things were not going well for them at all. So Paul sees a great opportunity to minister to them, and he's gathering these men up. Uh, from Macedonia, he says, they represented these church, the churches in Macedonia, so Peter was from Berea, uh, Aristarchus Secundus from Thessalonica, from Galatia, uh, again, the region to the east uh, of uh, Asia there, uh, Gaius of Derby, Timothy, remember on the second journey uh, that he they came across Timothy in Lystra, uh, which was in the region of Galatia. Now from Asia, which is the region of uh, around Ephesus, uh, he brings Tychicus and Trophimus with him. Now, I am of the conviction here, and, and I want to, I want to, present this properly. These guys accompanied Paul not because he wasn't trustworthy. I mean, you could kind of get the idea, it's like, well, yeah, they want to make sure that all the money shows up in Jerusalem and all. I don't think that that's what's going on. I think it's because Paul was eliminating any question of wrongdoing by voluntarily making himself accountable to them. And it's so wise. We'll talk about that more as we go. But he knew that one of the keys to successful ministry uh, was that of living in integrity as he fulfilled the call of God on his life. Uh, and one function of living in integrity uh, is that of living with accountability. 
uh, for your own actions, for one's actions. That's why in verse 18 of this chapter, Paul, speaking to the Ephesian elders, when we get to that where he is at Miletus, uh, he says of himself, he says, you know, uh, from the first day that I came to Asia and what manner I always lived among you. He's saying, look, my life should speak to you as to the level of integrity that I'm operating with. He says, and he, he goes on and he lets them know, I didn't come to get anything from you. I came to minister to you, not to have you minister to me. <laughs> and I'm going to avoid a long rabbit trail, but I will mention that one of the things that I am opposed to is when I hear preachers get up and talk about how much you need to support the ministry. And yes, we should be supporting the ministry. It's, there's absolutely biblical stuff about that and about giving and all. I'm not saying that at all. But when if I was going to get up here every Sunday and say, and let me tell you, and maybe put a head trip on you about tithing or maybe get out into some weird areas about giving, I'm asking you essentially to minister to me. And that's not what God has called me to do. God has called me to minister to you. And so I'm very careful about that. We have a box by the door and we trust that the Lord is going to provide for this church's needs. Uh, the conviction I had when I came to this church back in, you know, six years ago, uh, they're receiving an offering and that's fine. I don't, I, I, I don't have an axe to grind with anybody that's doing any church that's doing that. But as I was teaching on giving, as I was teaching on financial accountability, as I was teaching on trusting the Lord for our, our, for your finances, the conviction I had is, you know what? We as a church need to trust the Lord for ours. And so that's when we decided, you know, we're not going to pass the plate. We're just going to put a box in the back, and we're going to trust God to put it on your hearts to give according to your own means and, and out of your own relationship with the Lord. And that has been so freeing. So freeing for us. There's nobody can come and say, "Oh yeah, well, that church, uh, coverage, oh, they're just after our money." <laughs> you can't make that claim, and we ain't doing it. So, anyway, all right, longer soapbox than I wanted, but I think it's important. Uh, Paul says, "Look, I'm operating with integrity. I'm operating with accountability." And folks, that is hugely important. That uh, so. Uh, all right, I'll get to that later. <laughs> I, I, I want to just I want to detract from my notes, but we've got a lot of ground to cover yet. We're only on verse five. <laughs> I've got a bunch to go. So verse five, he says, "These men going ahead waited for us uh, at Troas." Now I want you to notice the the use of the pronoun "us" in verse five. Uh, when Paul and Silas and Timothy left Philippi and headed for Thessalonica on his second journey, Luke stayed behind because it was it was we and us up until then, and then it was they and them. And I know we're in a, we're in an age of weird pronouns, and I'm not going to even go there. <laughs> not going not gonna to take the bait. Sorry, <laughs> but, but it's important because Luke doesn't say, I rejoined them at, uh, at Philippi, but he does. Because now the narrative shifts from him saying they and them to we and us. He says, these men going ahead waited for us because Luke had rejoined them uh, at Philippi and they waited for us at Troas. So 
Paul would have to, he would have had to pass through Philippi on his way to Troas as he traveled through Macedonia, which I think is fascinating because if he'd have taken the boat, he wouldn't have made it back through Macedonia. And who knows where Luke would have been and who knows what we'd have had written for us to be able to read this morning. I mean, you just see the divine plan of God all through this. Again, if you're looking, you just see that there's just a beautiful orchestrated tapestry here of how God weaves these things together in these circumstances uh, as we look at and we study God's word together. Verse six, uh, so says, but we, and here again, there's that pronoun, the we, not they, we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Now, there's a little seaport city near Philippi called Neapolis. Philippi was inland, and that was something that they did in those days. Uh, it protected them from attacks by the sea to put the, the to build the cities inland a bit and then they would have a smaller city that would serve as a seaport <laughs> so we wanted to attack that great you're not going to get to us we'll have an advanced warning so there was sort of a strategic thing about that well so what's going on is in Acts 16 we saw that Paul and his companions they sailed from Troas to Neapolis and it says they ran a straight course in two days, that they left on this day and they got to Neapolis the next day. Here we're told it's five days. Now, uh, on this return trip, it's five days to make the same journey. The question occurs to me, why? And the only thing that makes sense is that they had a contrary wind. And now a contrary, if you're sailing, it says that essentially when they ran a straight course in chapter 16, they had the wind at their backs and man, it was pushing them along and they went straight to their destination. Now, five days, I don't know if you know much about sailing. I'm not, a, uh, <laughs> I've done a little bit, but if you're sailing against the wind, you have to zigzag back and forth. They call it tacking. You tack into the wind. And so it takes a lot longer because you're not taking a straight line. You're doing this whole zigzag thing to get to where you're going. And that's what's happening with them here. I also look at this and I think, isn't that how our lives go? There are times where then I feel like I've got the wind at my back. And yet there are times where, and I've, I've used the, the metaphor before, where it feels like I'm walking through two feet of mud. And it's just, it's a struggle talk about that more as we uh, wrap up this morning. So verse 7. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to uh, depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. (laughs) You guys think I'm (laughs) long-winded. I'm working on it. (laughs) I I am. I'm working on it. Rick's going to go, yeah, right. (laughs) He and I talk about that. In Greek culture, uh, also in Jewish culture, the first day of the week, Sunday, uh, it wasn't a special day at all. It was a work day because they, you know, the Jews did Shabbat and the Greeks didn't care. (laughs) So uh, for them, it was a normal day. Uh, for most of them. However, for Christians, it appears that by this time, it had already become a special day for worship that was set aside. In the future, it would become known as the Lord's Day. We see that 
Uh, and there's a passage in 1 Corinthians I could go to and we could talk about it some more. Uh, but the point I want to make is there is nothing more spiritual about uh, Sunday worship than any other day of the week. It's not about the day. And, and contrary to what some believe, I mean, you know, like the Seventh-day Adventists or you know, some legalistic fringe groups, the Hebrew Roots Bunch and uh, so on, uh, the church is not bound to a Saturday Sabbath. Uh, we're not bound to a Sunday Sabbath. Uh, in Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul uh, says this in verse 16 of, of Colossians 2, he says, let no one judge you. <laughs> That's pretty clear. In food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So he says, look, the Sabbath was a shadow. What do you mean it was a shadow? I remember when I was in Bible college, I was studying this, this book and the example that one of my teachers used. He said, it's like, okay, picture a great big tree, all right? And this tree is sitting out in the field and there's a shadow that goes out from this tree as the sun shines down on it. It's got a big shadow on it. And he said, how foolish would it be for you to go jump on the ground and try to climb the shadow? (laughs) And I just thought, what a great example. Well, when he talks about a, a shadow here, folks, if we want to get caught up in observing Sabbath days and all of the stuff, it's like trying to climb a shadow. He says, no, that's a shadow. What does it mean? It means that there's a greater fulfillment, a future fulfillment that would be completed in Christ. What does that look like? Well, I'm going to tell you. (laughs) In Hebrews chapter 4, the writer speaks of a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Uh, You can study this out yourself. I'm not going to go there. We just don't have the time, but it's a wonderful passage. Uh, but the distinction that the writer in Hebrews makes, uh, the, the one that he makes there, is it's not about a Sabbath day. It's about a Sabbath life. And we're called to a life of rest. Yeah, man is wired physiologically. Uh, we need rest. And, and having a day a week to rest, to just take it easy, is not a bad thing. I'm not condemning Sabbathing. <laughs> I'm just saying that you can't hang it theologically. You can't hang it on a certain day. Uh, the, the writer there, he says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today, if you hear his, vo- his voice, don't fail to enter his rest. And folks, there, the, the shadow there that, that Paul talks about in Colossians is fulfilled not in a Sabbath day, but it's f- fulfilled in a life of rest and peace and a life of, that's settled. Uh, that as I move through my life, as I go through my daily routine, uh, I, I, there's a settledness, there's a peace and a rest inside that I could never have when I was out there banging along in the world. That's the point. That's the fulfillment. Because with the Holy Spirit residing within, part of what he brings is rest. So after having spent the week at Troas, Paul had a lot to say in the short amount of time that he had left before his departure. I mean, he preaches till midnight <laughs> and then beyond. Uh, it, you know, this reminds me of uh, a few years ago, uh, uh, Stacy and I traveled. Actually, we've more than once, we've gone to do mission work in northern Thailand. 
And the first time I went, uh, the guy that ran the ministry, uh, Charlie, he's spoken at our church here before. Uh, he said, look, can you teach the book of Hebrews? And I said, sure, I'd love to. I had two weeks to do it. So as I was teaching the book of Hebrews, I realized that that a lot of the evangelization that had gone on in Southeast Asia, that the people had played down the Old Testament. And there was really a very low view of the Old Testament with the people that, because we were bringing pastors in from Burma, Myanmar, and bringing pastors and Bible teachers in from the capital city of Yangon and surrounding areas, all of that. Well, so these guys were coming in, and and they were coming to our school, and I was trying to teach them the book of Hebrews, and they kept scratching their head, and I, I kept getting diverted because it's like, you can't teach Hebrews without going into the Old Testament. Because the whole thing with Hebrews is the writer says, well, look at this that you have in Christ now, or look at this that you have in the law or in the Old Testament. Now look at this, you have the fulfillment in Christ. And he, and he bounces back and forth like that through the whole book. Well, I was losing these guys. So I got invited to go back again. And, and, uh, and Charlie asked me to teach the book of Hebrews. I said, well, that's fine. But I want to start with doing an overview, a survey of the Old Testament, because I want to be able to, 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 for these guys to be able to relate. So I do that. I get over there, and I had prepared this whole deal. I had I made this large format print of uh, Old Testament timeline, and I mean it has everything from Adam all the way to the Church Age, and you know I had this whole thing prepared for my class, and and I, I got there, and the way that we were splitting the workload was Charlie was going to do the morning from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., and I was going to do the afternoon evening from 3 p.m. to 9 p.m. Well, <laughs> I get there, and I told Charlie, it came in off the plane, and, and I said, I got a problem. And he said, what's that? I said, I got way too much information to teach for two weeks. I mean, I've got this whole Old Testament survey, and then I've got the book of Hebrews, which is going to support, you know, they, they, they'll, they'll mesh together. And he said, well, I got a problem too. I said, what's that? And he said, well, my son is sick. Our son is sick. I can't teach. And, and I said, oh, <laughs> that's interesting. I said, well, Charlie, how about I take both? I have too much information. You have too little time. And he said, John, that's 12 hours a day. <laughs> yeah, we're taking breaks for meals and, and all that. And I said, I know, but who knows what, what God wants to do here? I mean, I, I'm just excited to be here, and I'd love to serve the Lord that way. And he said, well, we'll give it a try. It was, and it was kind of a skeptical, we'll give it a try. So we did that. So I started out, and I started teaching 12 hours a day, teaching the Bible. It was, it was and I, it, two days in, I'll never forget, and I'll just wrap up with this. This little guy, uh, his name was, I don't know what his, his Burmese name was, but his, his English name was Heaven. <laughs> and, and he was a pastor. And Heaven comes up to me this, this one day and he goes, uh, sir, it, it, very, very 
wonderful culture. They always, if they walked past you, they would duck down so they could be below you. They would never want to be over you. It was, it was just a very interesting. So anyway, he puts his hands like he goes, "Sir, may I, may I speak with you, Pastor John?" And I said, "Yeah, sure, Heaven. What's going on?" And he didn't he didn't understand the nuances of English, and so he says. Pastor John, you have started in the morning and you end late at night. And this is like three days in. And he said, you must be exhausted by now. (laughs) He didn't know the H was silent. And I just laughed and I said, you know what, brother? I feel energized. I feel great. I never had jet lag. I arrived on like Saturday afternoon and was teaching on Monday morning and just hit the ground running. And I praise God for that experience. So when it talks about Paul preaching till midnight, I know what they're talking about. <laughs> anyway, um, it was a great experience. Did that for two weeks. And boy, howdy, when I got home, I hit the wall. <laughs> I was tired. We also did baptisms on uh, Saturday and then church services on Sunday. So it was a full trip. So... And, and just as a sad side note, the, the men from Burma who were at our school, uh, because of the, the, the coup a couple of years ago in, in Myanmar, Burma, same country, uh, I would not be surprised to learn that some of them have gone to heaven because they are, the church and Christians are under siege in that country. Um, being targeted by the military and uh, worthy of our prayers. One of the things that I learned, though, is that it blessed me to no end to see the depth of these guys' commitment to God's word. And I think about that. You hear Paul here, he's teaching until midnight. And these people are, I mean, they're just into it. Um, And we have busy lives. It's not, understand me here. It's not my intention to put some weird head trip out here. I mean, we have busy lives and we live in the culture that we live in and I'm good with all of that. And I also clearly remember being convicted about this because I found myself wondering, why does it seem easier at times for me to sit through a two hour movie uh, or to watch a two and a half hour ball game than it is to sit at the feet of my master? And learn of him. And those are good questions. Like I said, it's not something to produce guilt, but if it produces some divine activity, praise the Lord. It's also true, let me balance that. Uh, I clearly remember Pastor Chuck Smith, uh, when I was in Bible college, (laughs) he was telling us future Bible teachers, uh, he said, the mind can absorb no more than the seat can endure. So... (laughs) That's very, very true, and we need to take that to heart also, because uh, I, I know uh, I can put you guys to sleep. <laughs> so, uh, verse 8, there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together, and in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep. And he was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. <laughs> okay, folks, here we have biblical support for long sermons and sleepy <laughs> listeners. <laughs> and that brings me to the core of this morning's message. I want to talk to you about falling asleep in church. I'm trying not to make eye contact with certain people, but... <laughs> Uh, 
I might have done that a time or two myself. I, uh, one time I, 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 this is like 30 some years ago, uh, I would go and I would pray at the, I would pray at the back of people's heads at church. I'd sit on these cabinets in the back of this hall that we were renting. This is before we got our building at the Calvary Chapel I was at in California. And I would just sit up there Indian style on this big bank of cabinets and pray. <laughs> and this one day, it was cold in there. I mean, we had to turn on the heat when we got there, so it took a while to come up to temperature. And it was cold. And it was a sunny day, and this, there was a window right behind the cabinets, and this big beam of sunlight was coming in. So I scooted over, and I sat in this beam of sunlight. <laughs> and I don't know when I nodded off, <laughs> but I woke up about two minutes before the end of the service, and and Bobby, the Bob passed my pastor for many years. Lovely guy, uh, he was still just up there teaching away. And and I woke up and I realized that all these couples that I was looking at the back of them, that they were like doing this to each other, and then they would look over their shoulders and look at me, and then I could see their shoulders shaking again because they're laughing. And I thought, oh my goodness, I knew what had happened. I was a legendary snorer. (laughs) And I had snored through the entire service. I mean, loudly. I I mean, I was such a loud snorer. I was at a men's retreat one time, and the guy threatened to get a come-along and jack me out into the hallway. He said, I just can't sleep. Anyway, so the funniest thing about that, though, was Bob. Now, my pastor was hard of hearing. He was totally oblivious to it. And it might have been because he was in this, I call it being in the zone of when you're teaching, you don't see things, you don't pay attention, you just, you're focused. Uh, or it was probably because he hadn't gotten his hearing aids yet. It was, that came a couple of years later. Well, he comes back to the back of the room and I was feeling horrible. And I, and I just, I looked at him and I said, Bobby, he said, yeah, man. And he always had this great big grin on his face. Like I said, just wonderful guy. I said, Bobby, it wasn't you. He thought I was talking about some profound move of God during that time. And he looks at me and he he does this. He goes, I know. Praise the Lord. (laughs) And so I didn't fall out of a window, but I can relate to Eutychus really well. I'm blessed too as a pastor. And sometimes you guys come up to me and you say, oh, pastor, I'm sorry. I, I dozed off in the middle of it. I, da, da, da. And, I, and I, you know what? I don't see it. I really don't. I honestly do not see when you go to sleep. <laughs> I know you do because you tell me. <laughs> and it doesn't bug me at all. I mean, it's like, <laughs> if you need your sleep, I'm glad you're getting it here. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I would hope that it wouldn't be like every time. (laughs) Anyway, Eutychus had fallen for three stories. Now, I thought about this, the mechanics, the physics of this. And this is like, this is in an area of expertise in in my vocational life. I worked on billboards for decades. I mean, these great big, huge, I used to build these big, huge monopole billboards that you see out on the freeways and all that. I mean, (laughs) my wife got... She would freak out when I was working 60, 70 feet up. And I would just tell her, you're the cutest thing I ever saw in a hard hat. But my point is, is that I, I used to teach 
climber safety to guys when I was in corporate management in a billboard company. And, and so I, I would study the physics of falls. <laughs> so, and, and I know this is free. This has nothing to do with anything. I mean, you can tell people, they say, what did you learn at church today? I learned about <laughs> a free fall. But from 25 feet up, here's the point. From 25 feet up, Utica's body would have accelerated all the way to the ground. At the point of impact, he would have been going over 40 feet per second, or from zero to 27 miles an hour in the one and a quarter seconds it took for him to reach the ground. I used to teach this to guys. So I was like, I knew how to do the counts. (laughs) At any rate, when we're told in verse 9 that he was taken up dead, he was taken up dead. It, the, the Greek word is necros. It, that means dead. <laughs> now, and, and it's the same language that's used in Mark chapter 6 when John the Baptist's disciples that says they took up his body, same words, and laid it in a tomb. So, and also remember, Luke is with them. Luke is a doctor. He's an eyewitness of this. And if Luke went down there and said, he's dead, he's dead. <laughs> Verse 10. Just want to clear that up. (laughs) But Paul went down, fell on him, and embraced him, saying, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now this reminds me of Elijah and Elisha. When they were used to bring somebody back from the dead, they laid on top of them and all that. Anyway, again, don't have time to go there, but there's some great similarities in this. Uh, And I've got to believe that Paul was pretty stressed out. (laughs) When he reached the bottom story, I mean, he's teaching away, and somebody probably came up and said, (laughs) <laughs> this guy, Eutychus, he's on the ground down there. He's dead. <laughs> he's like, ah. And so he rushes down there. He jumps on top of this guy. <laughs> Catch the scene here. This is a scene. Uh, you know, people would be shouting and wailing, and you know, news is spreading through the crowd that Eutychus is gone, and he's a young guy. I mean, the Greek is very clear here. This is a guy that he's probably out of puberty, but he's not married, so he's like an older teenager somewhere in there. Young guy, he he falls asleep in the middle of the service. <clears throat> There's dangers to that. <laughs> but he falls asleep in the middle of the service, and he gets and he falls out this window, and he's he's gone. <laughs> so, the point in that is Luke has already told us that he's dead. Uh, Paul gets down there. He says, "Stop shouting!" <laughs> Essentially, he tells the crowd. Quiet down. He's not dead. His soul is in it. Literally, it says his soul is in him. So I, I don't think that we can interpret this that he revived. Paul's words here should not be interpreted to mean that that's what happened. So that his life, truly what happened here is his life had miraculously returned to him. Verse 11. Now when he had come up and broken bread and eaten... And talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed, and they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. They were greatly comforted. That's how the New King James renders this. And to me, it's again, it's mildly amusing that Luke tells this story through, uh, all the way through it, and it's as though it was like an everyday occurrence. It's like, yeah, well, Eutychus fell out the window, Paul was preaching, he went down there, and this guy came back to life. <laughs> and, but in hanging around with the Apostle Paul, maybe it was an everyday occurrence. I mean, you know, there were some miraculous things going on. 
as these guys moved through and, and ministered the gospel of Christ. So before Paul left, Eutychus' family, uh, they brought, brought the boy to, to see Paul and uh, to express their enormous relief, gratitude for him. Verse 13, and then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos and intended to take Paul on board, for so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. Now, Luke, along with the seven men who were traveling with Paul, had left the meeting earlier to board the ship before it sailed. Paul gets there, and for reasons we don't know, he makes arrangements to make this 30-mile walk from Assos to board the ship there. Uh, and verses 14 and 15, the last verses we're going to cover this morning, basically a bunch of stops along the way. Uh, it says, when Paul, uh, when he, that's Paul, met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene and sailed from there. And the next day came opposite Chios. The following day, we arrived at Samos and stayed at Tregillium. The next day we came to Miletus. So this last slide that we have, everybody look up. <laughs> uh, it, it shows the portion of Asia along the coastline. Uh, you see at the top, the arrow coming down is that they would be coming from Philippi to Troas. This is on his return trip. Now remember, he got to Corinth. They wanted to kill him when he got on the boat. So he said, no, nah, I'll walk, thanks. <laughs> Which would be, that'd be a tough decision. It's a long walk. And so he comes back through Macedonia gets on a boat at Neapolis from Philippi and comes down to Troas, spends a week there. And now you can see the blue line there from Troas is Paul taking the overland route, 30 miles or so. And the, the pink line is where the boat, the ship would have sailed around the, the horn there and gone to Assos. The next stop they had was Mytilene there on the island. Uh, and then Chios and then on down to Trogillium. And, uh, and then to Miletus. Uh, so Miletus, by the way, south of Ephesus was where Paul was going to end up. And this is where it's the location where the second half of this chapter comes into play. <clears throat> you can see on the map that it's just a little bit to the southwest of, of Ephesus. And the reason is, is he gets to Miletus and we'll look at it next week. And he sends for the Ephesian elders there while he's at Miletus and says, I want you guys to come down. We're going to have ourselves a conference. And he gets together with them there because he was so well known in Ephesus. Uh, and Ephesus is a huge city. He would not have been able to have the time that he would get with these men one-on-one had he gone into the city. I mean, he would have been just probably not mobbed in a bad way, maybe, but he thought it would be best if he went to a neighboring city located there. So as we wrap up this morning, I want to quickly move through uh, three things that catch my attention in this passage. Uh, The first one is what I would call humble accountability. Understand it and apply it to your own life. Uh, And as you serve the Lord, apply it to your ministry, whether that's the ministry of being a housewife or a mom or a father or at your job or whatever. I mean, folks, we're all servants of the Lord. And even though I'm in vocational ministry, that doesn't mean that I'm the only minister in the room. We're all ministers. Philippians chapter 2, talking about accountability. 
and humility, which is really important. I mean, if Paul wasn't a humble man, he wouldn't have voluntarily said, look, I'm going to be accountable to you guys with this offering. I'm going to gather up a group of men and we're going to take this together. In Philippians 2, verse 14, Paul writes to the church at Philippi, he says, do all things without complaining or arguments so that you will prove yourselves, emphasis added, to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. In other words, you are a light, so be a light. Again, he's humbly proving himself by making himself accountable to these guys he's traveling with. First Timothy chapter 3, uh, in verse 1, Paul says, It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. Again, there's that word. What does it mean? What, reproach simply means criticism. So, you know, if I wanted to walk in here with a bottle of Jack Daniels, that wouldn't be good. I don't drink, for one thing. But, but I mean, there's a place where it's like, I don't want to incur criticism because I don't want to tarnish the name of the Lord. And neither should you. <clears throat> there's a place where we know that our, our primary accountability is to God. Out of that, we become, we make ourselves accountable to others. I have people that I trust very, very implicitly in my life that, and specifically that I'm accountable to. And I enjoy that accountability. I have a board of elders that, that we have shared accountability. I have a board of directors for our church. We have shared accountability. And if you are in a position of leadership and you don't have an accountability structure, you ain't getting it right. It's important. Understand the linkage here. So the question is, how does one live in such a manner as to be above reproach? By intentionally living in integrity. So integrity simply is who I am when I'm around you is the same person that I am when I'm not. I live in integrity. I'm not, you know, there's not some double thing going on here. The point is, there's no fear in accountability when I'm humbly proving myself to be above reproach by operating in integrity. I know that's a mouthful, but it's, it's all linked together. Humility, integrity, accountability. The second thing is be discerning. Be discerning. Pray for, use the gift of discernment. And the gift of discernment is simply, it is a supernatural gift. It is where, you know, the Lord, the Holy Spirit gives me insight, maybe with a person or with a situation or with my wife. Hi, honey. She's watching from home. Um, no, seriously. I mean, this is where it, there's a supernatural equipping that goes on. And as we're discerning things, I, I want you to understand, the, 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 it's a little dangerous in some ways too, because I want you to understand, you might not always get it right. There have been times where I thought I was discerning something, and it turned out not to be so. So be very, very careful. But be discerning. We saw two separate instances here in Acts 20 where the Apostle Paul chose not to board a boat, decided to walk instead. At Corinth, he somehow discovered that plot by the Jews. Uh, that they were going to 
carry this thing out when the ship was underway. At Troas, uh, we only know that Paul chose to walk instead of to sail. Was it because he was spooked from the incident at Corinth? Maybe. Was it because he'd been traveling with a group of men and needed time alone with the Lord? Maybe, perhaps. We don't know. But what we do know is that Paul was very much in tune with the Holy Spirit's work in his life and in his ministry. And he made it a priority to discern what God was showing him at any particular time. Uh, I think back, we talked about it a few minutes ago, about when he was on his second journey and the Holy Spirit blocked him from going the route that he had planned because God had other plans when he got them to Troas and gave them the Macedonian vision and all that. The point is, he was discerning what was going on around him and looking at it through the eyes of the Spirit. Folks, there are so many times where I have looked at a situation or uh, been engaged in a conversation or whatever, and you know, the Bible says the way of man seems right to him, implied, <laughs> but, but it ain't always so. Folks, understand, the Lord wants to give us insight, discernment, as we move through and as we navigate in this world. Because as sojourners, as people that, I mean, this world is not ours. This isn't our ultimate destination. So as we go through it, we need to be able to interpret things through the eyes of the Spirit. That's the point. And we do well to practice discernment. The third thing, final thing, uh, is what I guess I would call contrary winds. Are you running a straight course? Or are you facing contrary winds in your life? We all go through seasons in our lives. Some of them are tantamount to smooth sailing. And some could be likened to stormy, sometimes very stormy seas. Sometimes the trip that should take me two days has taken me five. So the question becomes, how do I maintain my sanity in the midst of constantly changing circumstances? Folks, I remember one time I was teaching in the book of Romans in, in, in a church in Northern California, and it was an evening service. And, and I, I, I don't remember the passage I was in, but I do remember what I said. And I pointed to the door of the church and I said, and you don't know what's going to be happening in your life by the time you hit that door. And then the phone rang at the church. And it was one of the ambulance drivers, uh, one of our sons had been, he and his family had been hit head on by a drunk driver. And they were being life flighted to three different hospitals in three different regions because they couldn't get enough helicopters to go from the same place. My point is, circumstances change and they change in a heartbeat. No pun intended. <laughs> they do. So how do I maintain my sanity in all of that? And the answer, look up. Now, I know that sounds churchy. but We're at church, so hopefully it does. (laughs) But it's true. In Philippians chapter 4, in verse 11, the Apostle Paul shares, he says, I'm not speaking from need, so don't don't think that I'm, I'm working an angle here, is what he's saying. He says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. I know how to get along with little. I also know how to live in prosperity. 
in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And then he shares what that secret is. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Folks, as we go through these things, as we go through tough stuff in our lives, uh, I've, uh, I've mentioned before, I'll mention again, if, you, if you're not going through a trial right now, you're either just coming out of one or you're about to go into one. We all go through them. We all have challenges. Sometimes it's a smooth sail. Sometimes it's a straight course. Sometimes, man, it feels like I'm just tacking into the wind and I just can't seem to get anywhere. The point is, keep your eyes, keep your focus, keep your heart on the Lord. Allow Him to be the one that you're charting the course towards. The things of the world are going to pass away, but the things of the kingdom are those things which will last. And those things that as we fix our focus, we Hebrews 12, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Father, as we, uh, <laughs> as we uh, come through this passage this morning, as we look at the, the, just the challenges and all of the situations, the things that <clears throat> are occurring in the Apostle Paul's life, the, the men around him, <laughs> Eutychus, the guy, the, uh, all of these things, Lord, I pray <clears throat> as we wrap up today that, uh, Lord, I know how you move, and I know that it, 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 you call it the foolishness of preaching, and so I know, Father, that you have something for each one of us this morning. And Lord, as we focus on that thing, that one thing, I pray, Father, that you would give us the ability to respond. Perhaps, Lord, there are those here or watching online that don't know you, that are trying to... to navigate in this life without you. And it's hard. It's just hard. I pray, Father, uh, that if that's the case, that they would see the value of turning from the old life. Uh, just like we saw the people in Ephesus and Asia do in, in this wonderful book, and that they would embrace Christ, that they would let go of those things which are just bogging them down, and that they would simply... And firmly decide to follow Jesus. Lord, we know that, that you're the answer. We know that your way is really the only way that we could live and live an abundant, productive, and effective life. So, Father, I lift up my brothers and sisters here. Uh, Lord, I lift up those that, that, that simply need you. Going through the issues, the trials of this life. We're grateful, Father, that you haven't left us as orphans, but that you've given us your Holy Spirit that we can navigate, that we can effectively live in a crazy, messed up, upside down, sinful world. Let our light so shine before men that we could glorify our Father in heaven. That's our desire this morning. We give ourselves afresh to you in Jesus' name. Amen.